when the magazine came out, my whole soccer team had a copy and there was this girl who totally partied. I didn't even think she read books like or magazines. She just seemed like she had no interest. And we got in trouble because she was still reading the magazine. She put it away. And a couple of practices later, she came up to me. She's like, hey, Shelby, I got to tell you something. And I was like, what? She's like, I shared your story with my boyfriend and he decided to get sober. And I was like, wow. Podcast Junkies, episode 317. Welcome back. I'm your host, Harry Duran. If you're new to this show, it's the one where we speak to interesting voices in podcasting. We get them to kick back their heels, talk about their shows, and more importantly, what is on their mind and what is in their hearts. In case you missed last week's show, we had a great conversation with JJ Fazanes. JJ and I had a fantastic conversation all about the power of abundance mindset. Really high energy. We're getting some really good feedback. Her focus and her attention to supporting the people that she works with was really inspirational. I hope you get some time to check that out with JJ Fuzane. It's the last episode we had, 316. This week, I have a friend of the show, Shelby Stanger, on the show. She's been an, an amazing friend for me for many, many years. I actually helped her start this podcast, Wild Ideas Worth Living, and we have a fantastic conversation, a trip down memory lane. She talks all about her story how she's been capturing interviews for years with adventurers, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders. She dives deep into the transformative power of adventure and nature. We talk about stories of resilience and courage that she's shared on her show, how she was able to partner with REI after several years to have them become the official hosts of the show and what that meant for her and how it transformed her podcast as a business. So many great ideas. She's now just published her latest book, based on the podcast, Wild Ideas, Creativity from the Inside Out. So much good stuff in this show. I cannot wait to share this with you. So we're going to jump into this really quick. If you're enjoying this episode or any of the past episodes, I'd love it if you leave a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash podcast junkies. I would love to read those out on a future episode. Okay, before we jump into this conversation with my pal Shelby, a few words from the folks that support this show. So, Selby Stanger, my longtime podcasting peep, thank you so much for joining me on Podcast Junkies. Harry, it's such an honor. You're the reason and how I got my start. Oh, my God. We have to take a screenshot of this. It's so cute. Wait, hold it up. Wait, two seconds. Sorry, friends, but Harry is a dear friend. He's the one who got me my start in podcasting, and it led to a podcast that REI Co-op now owns, and now this book that he's holding in his hand, Will to Wild, Adventures Great and Small to Change Your Life. So Harry, you're the man. We'll do a squad cast shot. There's got a cool tool here, so I'm going to do it here now. It's called a squad shot. And so it should count it down. And then let's see. Let's try it. Cute. I love it. Yeah. Hopefully my mouth isn't open or something like, silly like that. <laughs> oh, it's a good shot. Okay, it's cool. It's cute. Yeah. Oh, you saw it too? Yeah, it's cool. It's letting me download it. This is awesome. Yeah. I'm an advisor to the team, so... The Squadcast team have been working with them for years. This is one of those suggestions I give to them early on. I'm glad to see they finally implemented it. Just this idea it gets it more social, like people talking about getting excited about the software they're using. Hey, we're on Squadcast. And it uh, helps them talk about that stuff. So I don't even know where to start. <laughs> We've been friends for a long time, but I guess maybe I'm thinking back to when you had the idea for the podcast like where's the first place you thought of or even before that like 
What even made you think of starting a podcast? Were you listening to them? Like, how'd they come on your radar? Yeah, I was a longtime journalist in the action and outdoor sports industry, and my stories started shrinking. But also, I loved the interview part of journalism the best. And I'm like, I wish I could just do interviews without writing the stories. But there was no medium for that. And then I listened to podcasts, and I loved Tim Ferriss's show. I just think he's, I still love his show. But I'd always wished he'd interviewed more women and talked about adventure because that's my love language. And a bunch of people were like, you should start one, you should start one. And I was a bit of in a transition. At that time, I had left corporate America to kind of be this adventure journalist, which was not a lucrative decision, but a really fun and rewarding decision in my life. And I took this thing called a strengths finder test. It's, you can get them online. Gallup, I think, runs them. Basically told me that I had all the skills needed to start my own podcast, but I was scared. I had no idea how to use audio equipment. I had no idea how to hold a microphone. The whole Zoom recorder like intimidated the heck out of me. And in 2015, when I had that idea, there weren't a ton of podcasts. People still didn't know what they were. And I was surfing and I was telling a friend, she's like, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm thinking about starting a podcast. And she's like, you know, you really should take this entrepreneurship accelerator program run by a woman named Sylvia Ma, who you know, Harry. Yeah, shout and out to Sylvia. she used to run the entrepreneurship program at UCSD. She had this all women's entrepreneurship program and it was 12 weeks. Day one, you write your business plan. The last day of class, you present your business to a team of investors. And I didn't even really think about starting a podcast as a business, but I called the woman out of the water, dripping wet, and she's like, class starts today. <laughs> and so I literally showed up dripping wet. That's I had so to funny. change of clothes and I had no food. She gifted me her lunch and we started writing our business plan that day. And I just kind of shuttered all my other PR clients and said, I'm diving in full on to podcasting. Now, this is where I met you. Yeah. I needed to have this podcast ready in 12 weeks, which mean I needed, in the podcast world, the idea was to launch with a trailer and three shows. But I was not gonna be able to learn how to edit a show, produce it, and get it onto a podcast app in that amount of time with all the other things I needed to do and still like keep my day job that I had. So she's like, you should just hire this guy, Harry. He's gonna help you. And like you were an investment at the time and I was like really scared to invest in you. And it was the best investment I made. And I think that's what I learned is that the best investment you'll ever make is the one you invest in yourself. You have to invest in yourself, it's scary. One, you'll show up. Like think about the times where you pay a personal trainer to go to the gym. If you're paying a hundred bucks to go to a gym, you're gonna show up because nobody wants to lose a hundred dollars. Yeah. And I measure everything by surfboards and surf trips. So if I'm gonna be paying like a couple surfboards a month to invest in Harry, I'm gonna get everything I can out of our relationship and really show up, give it my all, pay attention. And yeah, so you helped me launch my first couple of shows. Actually, I think we worked together till like show 15. You got me off the ground. Yeah. And then immediately, you know, I thought of, from, so from day one, you also coached me like, hey Shelby, think about your audience. Think if you wanna have sponsors and we did it. And I always wanted to write a book as well. And I didn't know that a podcast would be my avenue to a book, but it's been great because I was able to interview so many people and learn about a topic that I'm really passionate about, which is adventure, incredibly deeply over six years. And so this book is a result of six years of deep research into adventure and adventure mindset. And yeah, it's been really cool.
<laughs> so much to unpack there. So let's get into the book. We'll get into REI and all that sort of stuff. But I, I want to learn a little bit more about you. And it might be stuff that's new to me or maybe stuff we haven't talked about. You mentioned you had a nine to five job. So talk about even before then, your obvious first passion. You can see the surfboards behind you. I can't even count how many you've got there. Where's the... Yeah, yeah. What's the total count you have for the benefit of the listener? There's like probably a dozen, and there's more <laughs> like other places. I like surfboards. First time surfing, like how did that start? I grew up in this little town called Cardiff by the Sea, California, and not many women surfed, but a lot of my classmates did. And I just, dad was from Brooklyn, New York. My mom was from Pittsburgh. They didn't know anybody who surfed. And it just looked so free and so fun. And I went to this little water sports camp as a kid and you would take sailing or water skiing, kayaking, windsurfing, or you could take surfing in the morning. And then you would do all those activities in the afternoon, just different days with your own age group. And taking surfing was intimidating. It was all boys, but I really wanted to do it. So one day I signed up and I fell in love. Actually, the first time I ever surfed was in Hawaii on like a 12 awesome. foot long board. My grandma lived there and a guy pushed me into a wave and I stood up straight like a ballerina, like terrible stance. And I just loved it. And I loved boogie boarding as a kid. My parents wouldn't buy me a surfboard. They didn't really get it. And then my dad passed away suddenly when I was 11 of a heart attack. And it was a bummer, but like he had agreed to take me boogie boarding every Saturday, the day he died. And that summer my sister bought me a surfboard it was too small for me it had broken in half and someone sold it to her i honestly just realized that this year i'm like you got sold a buckled board i still have this board from <laughs> i slept with it in my bed oh i could barely God. ride it it was too small but i just loved being in the ocean and i think there's a lot of things that surfing has that other sports don't i was a competitive soccer player played okay. olympic development from a young age and soccer has rules and lines and it's stressful and you have to rely on other people and I was a goalie so like if I messed up it was my fault it was a lot of pressure and I played through first two years of college when I was like over it but surfing didn't have any of that there's no rules there's no lines it's free it's fun and I think in the ocean like nature there's a lot of places to experience beauty and awe and awe is what happens when we see like a dolphin leap out of the ocean and just out of nowhere. So much of our life is now predictable. Back then it wasn't as much, but awe can really take us out of our heads and make us present. So in the ocean, I had a lot of fun. I gained a lot of courage, but it also gave me time to heal. I'm from a really busy family that's high achieving and there's a lot of do, do, do. And I think surfing as a sport, an activity, a passion, sort of taught me to relax and go with the flow. And I was able to take that to other areas of my life. Yeah. So I found surfing young. Yeah. And so it sounds like you almost built this, established this connection with the ocean and you came to find peace in going out there. It's almost like, you know, I've heard it described as a meditative experience, as a calming experience. And it's, and it's something that once you start and you start to develop that relationship and it's almost like it's something you need to do for your own health on an ongoing basis. Is that what you found? The more you started doing it, the better you got and the more experience you had surfing? I'm still really a bad surfer, so it's crazy. It's like <laughs> one of those sports you're just like, you're really lucky if you get good at it. Yeah. But I would say I still have the same amount of joy I had at 11 as I do now. And now it's a sport I can enjoy with my friends. It's how I met my 
partner. I mean, he was surfing in Costa Rica and I was really cute and I cut him off and then um, <laughs> eventually started talking to me. And eventually six months later, we ended up together. But I think surfing is just a really unique activity. It demands you to be present, demands you to go with the flow and you're never going to be that good at it unless you're really lucky. And I think that's the point. It seems like one of those things that from the outside would appear to be a solitary activity. But from I remember I would go down to in a previous job, I had to travel down to San Diego a couple of times and we actually got to meet in person, which is awesome, which is so fun. And I remember those trips from L.A. to San Diego and there's a stretch and I forget what town it is, but you can see the surfers out there. They have San Clemente pretty much all the way down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you just kind of, I think it's 7 a.m. or maybe even 6 a.m. sometimes. But it's so interesting once you're in that routine and imagine what it's like. It's just like there's no other place you'd rather be when you get up and just grab your board and just get out there. So it's a solitary experience, but there is what seems to be like a strong community of folks who are out there every day. Yeah, I mean, there's different surfing communities all over, but, you know, surfers are a unique breed. Some surfers don't like to talk to other surfers. I'm one of those people that likes to talk to other people a little too much. And some people yeah, find yeah. me annoying, but I don't care. <laughs> so you're coming out of college, it definitely wasn't going to be soccer. What were your thoughts? Like, what did you want to do? You mentioned journalism. Is, is that what the focus was Yeah, so I went to school for journalism. So at a young age, pretty much after my father passed away, I started writing. And writing was also, I really started doing the things that I'm doing now after he passed away. I started writing and I started surfing. And when I was 15... An English professor was like, hey, if you guys enter this essay contest, I'll give you extra credit. If you win, you get an automatic A. And like English was easy for me. So I was like, okay, bring it on. And I didn't think I'd win, but I wanted extra credit because I was a nerd and an overachiever. So I did the essay contest and I won. And my teacher got $100 to Nordstrom's. I got a $100 check, which nice. felt like a lot of money back then. <laughs> really not. And I was like, this is so cool. And that kind of catapulted my journalism career. So at 15, I had this clip in the Union, San Diego Union Tribune. And then my sister was working in DC and she's like, Shelby, there's people starting a magazine for by and about teens. You should write a story for them. And so I did, and I wrote about a family member's battle with alcoholism and addiction. And it was like this really raw, heavy story. My mom worked in alcohol and drug prevention and addiction ran in my family. And when the magazine came out, my whole soccer team had a copy and there was this girl who totally partied. I didn't even think she read books like or magazines. She just seemed like she had no interest. And we got in trouble because she was still reading the magazine. She put it away and a couple of practices later, she came up to me and she's like, hey, Shelby, I gotta tell you something. And I was like, what? She's like, I shared your story with my boyfriend and he decided to get sober. And I was like, wow, I'm 16. Words can be powerful. So I was Whoa. like, I'm going to be a journalist. I'm going to write about this stuff and change lives. And then I went to journalism school. I worked at CNN. I worked for the newspaper in South Africa. And I kept like, I'd have to cover like fires and crime and just awful stuff. And I hated it. But I really loved covering adventure. And through adventure, you know, there's racism, there's depression, there's success, there's failure. And that was kind of the lens in which I enjoyed writing harder stories, but also I just wanted to do as many adventures as I could and get other people to pay for them. So it was also selfish. So I pursued adventure journalism pretty <laughs> full on. I had an adventure column in the local newspapers in San Diego. I taught surfing at a surf school called Surf Diva and there was no jobs to be an adventure journalist. I hit up the LA Times, I hit up the New York Times. They're like, 
who are you? But you sound enthusiastic, but we don't have a job like that. And someone said, you should talk to Vans. <laughs> They're a shoe company, but they sponsor this action sports series and the X Games and the Vans Triple Crown. And I did, and I ended up getting a job as the journalist for the Vans Warp Tour, which was a 60-day punk rock concert series that traveled to 60 cities in 60 days. I got it the day I turned 22. I started the tour, and it was wild. Wow. So you went on tour with them? Yeah, and I was one of the only women. Nice. And it was a very fun summer. I did not hook up with any punk rock stars. <laughs> hey, what happens on the Vans tour stays on the Vans tour. <laughs> What was the, that experience like? And because it's almost like when you're on a tour like that, you get swept into like the fun of the experience and, you know, what everyone's doing. But you're there to work, right? You have a job and you have to get stuff done. And how do you find the motivation? And did you know what you were going to write about or you just kind of like let each day come as it came and just figure it out from there? I mean, I had no direction. It was like write a story every day and send us as many photos as you can. Now, the biggest obstacle, which actually wasn't that hard. There were other people who had to sell t-shirts all day long in the hot sun and warp tours are held in fairground parking lots. So there are these dirt parking lots or stadium parking lots, but there's no phone line. And this was 2002. So there's no Wi-Fi. I know I sound ancient, but like the hardest part of my job wasn't taking the photos or getting the stories. I learned how to do that in college. I felt confident going up to strangers, getting a story. I wasn't afraid to ask rock stars for their stories. I'm just fascinated by people. So there's always stories to tell. What was hard was sending those stories at the end of the day back to vans. It meant needing to find a phone line, which meant needing to either hitchhike with somebody who looked like they weren't gonna kill me to a Kinko's or to their parents' house to use a phone line because the only phone lines that were available were held by like the tour staff and the tour staff oh, man. was scary. Have you ever been in the music industry? Like people who work in the music no. industry, if you're 22, they're gnarly. They're yeah, like yeah, very yeah. abrasive. They have to get, you know, ticket sales or they're scary looking. They had like really intimidated mohawks and tattoos. And, you know, I later learned that some of the guys that were the scariest looking were the absolute nicest. The sweetest, yeah. But yeah, so, so it was a good experience in being resourceful and not judging someone by their appearance and just being very flexible because every day something new would happen and it was wild. It was controlled chaos. I couldn't do it now. Like even when I smell tour bus fumes, <laughs> I sort of get a little PTSD. <laughs> like I can't do it. I can't go to super crowd. But I also really enjoy if anybody's like playing loud punk rock, like I just have this like crazy urge to jump in a mosh pit and like start <laughs> dancing really wildly. Any stories that stand out that you can repeat from that tour that you remember? I think there's some like sweet stories. Like I had to interview Greg Graffin of Bad Religion and we were in Montreal and he's like a professor of religion. He actually really preaches what he sings about. And so we went to bookstores and did like a summer reading list for kids. That was fun. I think hanging out with Steve Van Dorn, who's dad founded Vans and his daughter, Christy Van Dorn, was a really beautiful experience. I haven't met many people in the world like Steve and Christy. They just have hearts of gold. Steve doesn't drink and he's like a giant kid. This was the guy who had like an executive position at Vans and we would go to different tour stops and he'd want to get dinner, but he'd order ice cream 
before dinner. And it was like before. to a kid. It was awesome. And I remember people would come up to him and they'd be like, oh my God, are you Steve? Can I show you how to do an Ollie? And he'd be like, yeah. He was so enthusiastic. And he'd call up someone from the corporate headquarters, get the kid's address, and like a fresh pair of vans would be sitting on that kid's driveway the very next day. And he's just that kind of guy that's, you know, really kind. So he's just the kind of guy that's just really kind and really cool. So being with people like that was really kind. I mean, there was definitely times where I would take a shower and the shower situation at these places was always very awkward. There's definitely <laughs> like a rock star with some other girl in the women's shower. <laughs> and I was like, oh, hey. And I saw things that like, you know, to a 22 year old were eye opening. So that was fun. That's awesome. So the tour wraps up. What are your plans after that? I had no idea what to do next, but I was like, I need to go write about snowboarding because I know how to write about surfing. I know how to write about skateboarding. I just worked with vans. I wrote about tons of skateboarders that summer. I'm like, I want to live in the mountains. And I had a friend from the Warp Tour moving to Breckenridge, Colorado. Oh, nice. So I packed up my stuff and I wanted to wait tables. And my mom was like, what? I just sent you to Emory University and paid for this expensive college and you're going to go wait tables in Breckenridge, Colorado. And she was pissed. And it was kind of the first time I had a fight with my mom. But, and when I was there, I immediately got a job waiting tables. It was hard because I didn't lie like everybody else did. They lied and said they had experience, but I was a bad liar. So I, I was like, look, I've never waited tables, but I've done, I've worked at CNN. I've done all these things. And most people wouldn't hire me, but finally a guy hired me. He asked Steve Van Dorn, the guy from fans for a reference. Steve gave it to me and he's like, Shelby's great. Just hire her. It was a Mexican restaurant. I spilled okay. like, they put ketchup in their salsa. It was so disgusting. But on day, like first week I was waiting tables, there was a guy in my friend's section and he hosted the local TV show. And I was like, hey, can I trade you sections right now? She's like, yeah. And I went up to him and I was like, hey, I love your TV show. It was like the local cable access ski show. And I asked him to, I was like, hey, I'd love to be a host for your show if you ever need a co-host. And he's like, actually we're hiring. And they were hiring for an entertainment reporter. And I literally like showed up at the station and got the gig. And I sent it to my mom at Thanksgiving and she was so proud. She's like, okay, <laughs> I get it. You're using your degree. You're hosting a TV show. I got a job writing for the newspaper. I did PR for the resort. And I'm not gonna lie, in 2003, when you're a woman in a mountain town, like with a big education, you could get away with murder. Like I think, you know, back then there were a lot of ski bums that didn't want to work. Yeah, and yeah. or just chill and there weren't a lot of women so they needed women to fulfill jobs it's changed you know breckenridge is like an expensive town now but yeah it was fun so that was that <laughs> i think if the listener is paying attention there's a common thread that's running through this it's this idea of you're almost making your own adventure and you're creating your own opportunities you have this like go-getter attitude is this something that you've always had as a since you're a child if i ever had a chance to talk to your dad or talk to your mom like would they have said like oh yeah no surprise that's shelby i think so i think i just wasn't like great at following rules and always wanted to do it a little bit differently i don't know my mom was really resourceful like after my dad died she kind of had to figure it out and she created opportunities for herself and she had a lot of like a trauma growing up and you know her dad passed away of suicide and she lost a son that was born before me after my sisters so i was very protected but i always had a lot of fear because they were scared i was going to die so like i grew up in fear but with 
a lot of protection. So I was fearless and afraid at the same time. And I think I've always chosen to do things that were scary to rip away that fear. And I don't really talk about it in the book because it was kind of heavy, but if I had to do it over, I would have talked about that in the book. But yeah, I think I always was like unafraid. And also at that young age, I took with me the lesson that life is not to be taken for granted. Like my dad was super healthy and he just died suddenly of a heart attack at age 47. And that was shocking to an 11 year old. So I always believe that you get to create your own destiny and you're right. Like I've never been able I haven't really ever gotten a job by just like filling out a LinkedIn or like resume post. It's always been like, hey, I know you're hiring for this. Do you need me to also do this? And then showing up over delivering and being easy to work with. I think that's like what I tell anybody is like, be fun to work with, be easy to work with. Don't make your boss's life hard, make them look good. Even if you don't like what they're doing, like they're taking a chance on you. You gotta over deliver. Yeah, as a business owner, and I'm sure this is something you can relate to now is, you know, it's so hard to find people that you can trust to work with you and even work ethics nowadays. And, and you see it now, especially with this, like, what happened post COVID, the shift to remote work, and people are just like, now being picky about where they work and whether they're going to want to go into the office. And, and that's fine. And that's the way things are that we can't turn back the clock, like it, the cats out of the bag, whatever the appropriate phrase there is. But I think it gets harder and harder to figure out like people's work ethic and their desire to do a job and to take pride in their work. And I think that's, it's hard to find people like that. And so I applaud you for being, for having that work ethic early. I, I had a similar work ethic as well to just try to over deliver because I didn't, I didn't finish college. I didn't like study a specific degree. So every job I was into where I got offered, I'd be like, yeah, I, I can do that. I sort of like let them know that I could figure it out or I could do it. And then I just get, I remember I, I took a job on project management. I didn't know it. So I went to the library or Barnes and Noble at the time. I'm dating myself now too. And I, I bought three books on project management. And I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll figure it out. So it's kind of that same vibe of just like, if you give me the opportunity, I'll show you that I can, you know, meet your expectations or exceed. That's awesome. Yeah. I think I also grew up at a time where like, you didn't take things for granted and you didn't act entitled. Like you had to sort of be grateful for whatever job you were given and over deliver. I think the generation today, like I have people that work with me younger, they demand a lot. I'm like, what do you mean? Like I never ask for any of the things that you're asking with. Like it freaks me out, but yeah, good for them. You know, I think that the younger generation is really smart and savvy. And sometimes when I work with people younger than me, I want to be like, dude, you're so lucky. Like you have no idea. And it is what it is. It's good. We can learn from both the old and the yes. new. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. It's some people would see it as like, you know, who are you to be asking this, but there's something to applaud in terms of like their yeah. desire to like want more and to expect more and to push and to like, you know, see what's possible, which I think is awesome. So you're, you know, we'll fast forward through your whole corporate life. And then you obviously have a lot of writing going on. So you get this idea for a podcast, we start working together. How do you figure out like who you want to start having conversations with? Did you have people in mind or, you know, talk a little bit about that process? Well, I knew I wanted to cover people with wild ideas. And I just remember one of the first guys I randomly like had the New York Times and there was a guy who ran across the country and was the fastest guy to ever do it. Broke a record that had been held since the 80s. Pete Kostelnik, he was one of the first guys I ever interviewed. And I just randomly pitched him and his agent emailed me back and she just happened to be living in San Diego in my same town. I was oh, like, wow. <laughs> I'd absolutely love for you to interview Pete. 
I still keep in touch with Pete and the, his old agent today, or she was like his publicist, but she was so kind and so cool. And he's a big part of my book because that was a really wild idea. I mean, running, he did f full Forrest Gump thing, ran across the country from San Francisco to New York and broke a record doing it. And he was averaging like so many miles a day. It was crazy. Like definitely well over a marathon. Did you have an idea of what your style was going to be like when it came to being like a host or being interviewing or, you know, obviously you had a lot of experience because you did a lot of interviews before. So did, did you feel natural in that space? I was nervous, but yeah, I felt pretty natural. Like, I feel like I can talk. If I have one superhero power, it's I can talk to anybody about anything. I've had so many like different experiences in life and I grew up with two older sisters. They're so different than me. And then I played on so many soccer teams. So I've always been in situations with people that are vastly different than me that I feel like I can get along with a lot of different types of people. So talk about the different phases of the show. You get into a rhythm, you start finding people because, you know, everyone who's been doing podcasting for a while knows that, you know, you get those first few under your belt and you start to build momentum and then people can see that you've interviewed other people. So now you can just show them the names and you're like, oh, I've interviewed this person and this person. Did you find that you started more doors started opening up for you in terms of who you wanted to speak to? Yeah, I think it was pretty natural. I think I was lucky at the time. I didn't have a lot of competition and I had a lot of context because I had so much experience like as a journalist and talking to athletes. So I basically started with the people I knew who were my friends or who I really wanted to interview. And yeah, some people said no, like Cheryl Strayed said no or didn't respond back. But years later, she said yes. I think that's because REI helped me. But, you know, I didn't get too many no's back then. I got some no's, but I just didn't take it personally. Like you're going to hear a lot of no's. And sometimes a no, I tell people, is not now, you know, or maybe it's later. And so you started working on, you started having the interviews, started producing the show. Talk about when you started having those conversations with REI. Was there someone else before REI or how did that whole process start? So day one, even you gave me this advice. You're like, you have it sponsored. And I was like, <laughs> oh God, who's going to sponsor it? And it was great because I needed to pay you. So I needed money to pay you. So I hit up brands that I knew. I was lucky I worked as a journalist covering CEOs of brands. So I could hit up a lot of brands. I knew a lot of brands in the outdoor space. And I actually pitched magazines and I was like, hey, don't you guys want a podcast? You could just acquire mine. And one of the first sponsors I pitched was REI. And I found a really nice guy at REI. It took me a really long time to find the right person to pitch. And when I pitched him, he said, Shelby, you sound really great. Your podcast sounds great. We are not in the podcast space. We sell outdoor gear. And I was like, cool, I'll stay in touch. I was kind of gutted because REI had just launched this force of nature campaign where they were showcasing women in nature. And I'm like, I'm a woman. I've been interviewing women in nature for years. Of course, they're going to fund my podcast. And they said no. So I went and got other brands to sponsor it. I was like, you know what? That's okay. There's a lot of brands. And I was taking on PR jobs on the side to pay my bills. And finally, Johnny was like, stop, stop pitching for other people. Give 20 pitches a day for yourself. And when you do that, then you're allowed to complain to me if you've had no success after like 150 pitches. That's good and advice. After you pitch enough people, you start hearing some yeses. I had the podcast sponsored enough to cover my bills. I just was kind of scraping by, but it was working. And six months later, I hit up REI and I was like, hey, do you want me to send you this beautiful pitch deck I just created about the podcast? And they're like, actually, no, but we do want to talk. And they never called me back that fast. <laughs> and we talked that afternoon and they gave me a proposal to license the show. 
So they were a license of the podcast for a couple of years. And then in 2020, they're like, Shelby, we want to acquire a podcast. And I was like, my baby. Yeah, I don't know if I want to sell it. But on, I went back to that original business plan and it was like, in five years, sell to REI. And I was like, what? I did this. Like I manifested it. And honestly, there's a lot of things I tried where I didn't have this much success. Like I've tried all sorts of things and just ran into walls and didn't go the fastest I wanted to go or the speed I wanted to go. And I think that was what was so cool about the podcast is it felt so good and so natural and I was so passionate about it. And like doors started opening where I didn't see doors. I also just didn't get in my own way and I worked my little tail off, but I genuinely loved what I was doing. It was the first time that I found something that I was so excited about. There's been other things that I've done that like I have not been that excited about and I grinded on and it just didn't work out. So this was one of those things that worked out. Talk a little bit about that process, because I think uh, podcasters who've been doing their shows for a while, you know, they always think about what the outcome is going to be. What's the exit going to be? Is it going to be, you know, what you experience with the sale of your show? Is it going to be even landing a sponsor is a big deal for podcasters because they're happy now because if it's a passion project, it's being paid for. And, you know, if they're lucky, they're even making some money out of it. So the big milestone was obviously the conversation with REI, but how do you think about this idea of, you talked about it as your baby, so, and I can relate, you know, I have two shows and, you know, the second one is picking up steam as well. So I've been thinking about, you know, what's the outcome for that look like? How do you make a decision like that? You know, this is something that you've grown from zero and you've put your blood, sweat and tears into it. And then for someone to come and, and appreciate the work that you've done, but also to know that there comes a point when they can be able to make the decision that wild ideas worth living is no longer <laughs> Shelby at some point, it could be someone else. So that's, that's I'm sure, something you thought about long and hard. <laughs> you cry. <laughs> yeah. It's really hard to make those decisions. I wrote a pro con list. I talked to people. I've really struggled. And eventually, I had someone say at a dinner party one day that it doesn't matter how your idea gets into the world. It just matters that your idea gets into the world. So I had to remove my ego and let go of the fact that wild ideas wasn't going to be mine and i wasn't going to make like <laughs> billions and billions of dollars yeah, yeah. from like residual stuff i told them i wanted to write a book and i wanted to keep that and ultimately my goal with wild ideas was to get more people outside and use nature and adventure as a catalyst to heal and improve their lives and rei yeah, could just do it better than i could i thought like i'm one person I like being the goalie, the weirdo in the back that like takes a lot of blame, but also gets like a lot of, you know, props yeah. if they save the goal or, you know, wins the game. I'm okay being the hero or the villain, but I like having a team in front of me and podcasting can be really lonely. REI provided a rock star team. Like they had the best people working on my podcast with me and they're cool. And I really like the people I work with. And I really like that brand. Like there's a lot of brands out there that do just weird stuff. And REI is a good brand. They get people to experience joy outside without yeah. having their tent <laughs> soak in the middle of the night. You know, they let you be safe in the outdoors and they're really nice. They're just a nice brand. I wanted less stress. Like podcasting is a lot of work. And I thought maybe there was a chance that free time in my life was something I valued and I could do something else with that time. Now, I don't suggest anybody writes a book if they want more free time. If 
because it's way more work than I ever imagined. But yeah, I think it's been a really good partnership. And they've actually signed on for more years, which is great. You know, originally we were just going to do a couple years and the show is really good for REI. And so we continue to keep it going. We've changed the show. We've made it 50 shows a year, which is a lot. We have this awesome production team that I originally was working with and they hired and they've gone on to produce tons of other shows. And it's been really cool. I don't know why it hasn't won a million awards, but it's a great show. And when people find it, they really like it. We don't submit it for awards. That's like a whole game that we should probably play, but we haven't yet. So it's all good. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense to, to, there's a lot of ways you can get visibility for podcasting that actually don't cost a lot of money. And so you probably should speak to them about, you know, the podcast apps. They're always looking, I've submitted shows to Pocket Cast, for example. They're always looking at categories of like nature, Earth Day, just conversations with interesting folks. You know, they always have these weird categories. And I look and I, if I see a show that fits or one of my client shows, I'll submit it. And Podcast Junkies got picked recently, which is great because we're coming up on the ninth year anniversary of the show. But it's interesting because you, as a podcaster or even as a podcast team, you do have to do the little things to get visibility, to get visibility for the show. And obviously there's always paid opportunities as well so that we work on clients with. But there's a lot of free stuff. And all these apps, all these directories are always looking to highlight shows, women-led shows, obviously, you know, so it's, it's taken advantage of, so like, you know, National Women's Month or something like that, just what's happening where they're looking for content and just being aware, putting those on the calendar and just being, you know, reminding yourself to submit the show. It's so funny. I really rarely get like props for being like a, a woman-led show that I have like almost an equal amount of men who listen as women, which I think is really cool. I've never tried to like just play the woman card. But I think it's really helpful. And Apple has been really kind in featuring our podcast. And that's, that's huge. <laughs> so thanks, Apple Podcast. <laughs> How have you grown as a host since starting the show? I used to be kind of neurotic about my question and answer interview process. And I'd have Johnny pretend like he was a guest. And we would go back and forth as if he was the guest and how they would answer. And I'd ask a certain question. And now I really just try to have like four things I want to discuss with a guest. And then I try to be really present, listen, and take the conversation from there. And I've just changed a lot that way. How else? I don't get so nervous anymore, which is great, but I still get nervous on some of the bigger ones. And the guests have changed. You know, I used to interview just like surfers and authors and people who really I was most interested in. And now REI picks a lot of the guests and they pick a lot of people that I never would have thought about interviewing. And so it's pushed me to interview people that are completely different than me, who live different lives, who are pushing the outdoors in ways that I'm not used to. And it's been really cool for me. It hasn't always been easy, but it's been really, really enjoyable. And I've met really interesting people. Very cool. So you mentioned the, the idea for the book had always been in, in mind. And did you see that the interviews themselves were going to play an important part in the content for the book? Or was there a lot of your personal story that you wanted to bring in or a mix? How did you think about that writing process when you got started? I just thought it was going to be easy and it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> just write the, just take the transcripts of the shows, piece them together. That did not happen. I had to go back and kind of re-interview everybody. Having transcripts was really helpful, but... I broke the book into themes on how to have a wild idea and really make it happen. So what's your will to wild and what that giant theme was. So it's really a book on the mindset of how to have an adventure and pull it off when things go wrong. And I also wanted at the request of my publisher 
to include adventures that weren't so daunting. So I have like big adventures that are just case studies. You know, I'm never going to paddle on a paddleboard from Alaska to Mexico or ride my bike from Alaska to Mexico or ski across Antarctica like a lot of the guests or free solo up El Capitan like Alex Honnold does. I'm probably not even going to bike across California. Maybe I'll just hike my local hill. But I think that an adventure, even a small one, if it's big to you, can have a profound effect on your life. So I don't know, it was a, a mix. Really, I started with themes. I was like, okay, these are the chapters I want to talk about. These are common themes that aren't always talked about in adventure books, like how to deal with self-doubt and fear. And then I think one of the biggest things that I wanted to talk about was during an adventure, when you finish a big one, a lot of times people have like post-adventure depression. And it's it can be debilitating. So... I had to find stories that fit and not every podcast fit and some fit better. And it was really hard. I just had a lot of outlines. I tried some things and I wrote the book and then I rewrote it and then I rewrote it again. And I didn't realize how much rewriting would be involved. It felt like writing a hundred articles for outside magazine. That's what writing this book felt like, but it's done. I'm stoked. <laughs> I think one thing I wanted it was to read like an adventure where the middle is going to be really exciting and you're going to get some resolution. And I also wanted to be able to turn the page and just turn to whatever you really wanted to work on and have there be tips to help get you through. Of course, I could have kept rewriting this book for five more years, but books have deadlines and so do adventures. And that was part of this process. The book was like a giant adventure. And one point I just had to hit send and write the end and turn it in. And that was really hard. Just like some point you're going to have to start your adventure and you're never going to be as ready as you want to be. You're never going to be as ready. You can always have more gear, more education. You could always make your boat better to sail across an ocean, but eventually you got to untie the dock lines and go. I learned that writing a book. It was hard. Did you have post book completion depression? <laughs> I think I will. when I'm done with the book tour, I'm not there yet. I'm like, I'm in the fun part now. It's done. I get to talk to people. They get to read it. I'm terrified of what people are going to think. I have a lot of anxiety about like, oh my God, what if they hate it? You know, a lot of the book I wrote, for those of you listening who maybe have read the book, I wrote some of it when I was 29 years old in the middle of massive depression of wanting to quit my job and having all this anxiety. And the voice of this angsty 29-year-old is in the book. And I don't really like that angsty 29-year-old. And maybe readers won't either and i just left it in there because i'm like you know what that was my story then yeah of course and it's evolved and i kind of kept it really true and then i think the most fun part of the book is like probably where i talk about fear and how i got over fear and there's some funny stories and a good old-fashioned wiener joke and <laughs> you know humor i've learned is a really good salve for fear yeah totally because it can help deflate the fear and get us out of our heads and make us realize that like it's not such a big deal after all even if it is a big deal if you can have humor you can sort of get through so how long was the entire process would you say you know start to finish writing the book Probably like two and a half to three years and it felt long i'm used to being a podcaster your deadline is like kind of fast the podcast comes out maybe like a couple months later max magazines three months time newspapers are like you write an article, it comes out the next day. Websites, same way. So this length was really challenging for me. 
I think part of it was because my opinion kept changing on things. And that's really natural. That's human nature. Your ideas change and morph. And I kept getting these interviews that I would do. And I'm like, oh, my God, that would have fit better for this chapter. And I do another interview the next week. And I'm like, can I rewrite? Then my editor was just so over me. I feel bad for yeah. them. But <laughs> that's their job. So It's never done. Yeah, it's never done. Yeah. So now you're on the official book tour now? This is, you're kicking off the official book tour, <laughs> Terry Durant. I've done one other podcast interview. I'm going on Gabby Reese's show, which will be really oh, exciting awesome. on Thursday. Yeah. She and Laird Hamilton want me to go in their sauna and work out with them. I don't know. I'm just kidding. Hopefully he doesn't just do it all. <laughs> surfing. Yeah. I'm excited. I really like connecting with other podcasters. You know, we're a weird bunch. We like stories. Yeah, and totally. I think it's cool because I relate to other podcasters. So the podcast part of this is the most fun. I'm also doing a TEDx the same week of my book launch, which was kind of a wild idea, but maybe not the smartest one. I'm dying right now, but I'm going to get through it. You're doing it? It's going to be in San Diego? It's TEDx San Diego. So there's TEDx's all around the world. And this one is really interesting because they took only people from San Diego to do TEDx San Diego. And it's the first of its kind that's ever done that. Very cool. Yeah, it'll be cool. So that's going to be sometime. Book is launching. It says on sale here June 6th. Book is on sale June 6th. TEDx is June 11th. And you can get tickets to live stream it. My talk is on the same topic as the book. I will definitely be live streaming that. <laughs> oh, thank you. That was so kind of you. So exciting to hear, like, especially since, you know, we started working together. Remember those early days, how nervous you were about getting started with podcast. But what I knew for sure is that you had the passion, you had the drive, you had the skills to have these conversations because of everything you had done in the past. So I think I just really had no doubt that you were going to succeed. And it's been so happy to kind of see your success. And, you know, as people hear the story here on the show, it's probably no surprise that you have this drive that's always been present, whether it's been with soccer or surfing or journalism or putting yourself in uncomfortable situations. So just really proud of you and just kind of excited to see where this journey continues to go because I, I got a feeling there's a lot more adventures in store for you. <laughs> I hope so. Well, thanks, Harry. You've been a really good coach and you're always willing to pick up the phone when I need you. And I just so appreciate that. I tell everybody, like, if you need a coach to get you through podcasting, hire Harry <laughs> because you're really yeah. good about getting us unstuck out of our heads and actually recording a podcast. I think a lot of people get held up with fear of actually, am I good enough? Do I have imposter syndrome? Yes, everybody has imposter syndrome. It's totally normal. And you just got to go for it. You know, it's not going to be perfect. I think that's why I like podcasting is I'm such a perfectionist. And you can kind of mess up on a podcast and then another one comes out the next day. Books are brutal because I think I was really afraid to mess up writing the book. And so... I don't know if the writing is as like as my I think it's fun. Like there's definitely some really fun part, but the process wasn't as fun as podcasting because I was so scared the whole time. I and mean, books feel really finite. And even the reactions from people in the book were totally different than people who reacted being on my podcast. Like no one really cares what they say on a podcast, but they really care about what they say in a book. I found that to be very it's interesting. More permanent. <laughs> It's so interesting because I had a, a similar idea when I started Podcast Junkies and I took, I think I hired someone on Fiverr and I paid them like 500 bucks and they took the transcripts of the first five. I published a book called Around the Podcast Campfire, but it's more of like an ebook. It wasn't really like, you know, something you can hold in your hand. And, you know, I've always 
really felt at some point that I, I want to publish something, especially telling my story from the podcasting space, what I'm doing there. And I always talk about podcasting is helping people find their voice. And so it, it's, it'll be around that topic of finding your voice. And, and again, and I think people worry sometimes like, oh, my story isn't done. So I, I maybe shouldn't write the book. But I don't think anyone's story is ever done. And I think just finding a moment in time to share what's real for you in that moment that you're writing the book. And then if you got something else to share, you write another book. <laughs> totally. I think that was my biggest fear is I was like, why am I writing this book? Like my story isn't done. I don't even know what it is. Everybody has a story to tell. And I told a lot of other people's stories, which I think made it a little hard, but I wanted to showcase like other people adventuring in a lot of different kinds of ways. So there's all types of adventures in my book from the first outdoor drag queen to a guy who found sidewalk chalk art outside to a grandma who relearned to surf at age 85, a group of Latina women who started the first run club for Latina women in San Diego and just won best run club, a highliner, a slackliner, paddle boarders, guys that are like super gnarly and rock climb up crazy mountains without ropes, a mom who started becoming a guide and started teaching people to ice climb at age 55 after having a full career. So there's all sorts of types of people adventuring in this book. And the goal is just like, hey, wherever you are, go outside in nature and it might change your life. Well, I'm excited to read that and I think it'll definitely get me out a bit more. So I'm going to be setting aside to, some time to dig through that. A couple of questions as we wrap up. What is something you've changed your mind about recently? Writing a book. <laughs> it's a good one. Yeah, I think just actually what we were talking about, like your story doesn't have to be done to write one. And also, if you're going to write one, you have to really, really, really want to write a book. So that's probably something I've changed my mind about. A saying that I've been using a lot is your ego is not your amigo. I've never thought your ego was your friend, but just something that's really, as I go through a book tour is like, let go. Yeah, that's a great one. Like surrender. I used to think you needed to kind of like claw your way up a mountain and no, let go and surrender to the elements and the forces around you. If it's meant to happen, it will. You just have to have a little bit more grace. So that's probably the biggest thing I've changed my mind about. Like not efforting as much, more like going with the flow. I'm writing down your ego is not your amigo. That would probably be the episode title. <laughs> Ego is not your amigo. I love that. What is the most misunderstood thing about you? Oh, I think people think I'm really chill. <laughs> and I am like really fun and I love people, but I can be like a little neurotic about and perfectionist about my stuff, which is something I'm trying to work through, which was the book was a good exercise and kind of letting go of perfectionism. There's some errors in the book, probably even in the final copy. And you just, it is what it is. You got to let it go. Got to let it go. But I think guys meet me and they're like, Shelby, you're going to be so chill. And they're like, oh, no, she's not that chill. <laughs> she's pretty high strong. I can vouch for your chillness and a bit of your neuroticism as well as we were working through the podcast. But it all ended up being for the good. Because I, I think what the reason behind that and the drive behind that, and maybe if it comes across as neuroticism, is also your, you take a lot of pride in the work you do. You know, you're also, you know, know that you want to do the best possible. And I think... That's that drive that pushes you to always kind of be the best version of yourself. That's what comes through. So that's what I appreciate. 
Well, thank you, Harry. I totally appreciate it. And thanks for all of your help. You're part of this will to wild. So I appreciate you. Well, it's been so fun to watch the journey. Can't wait to read the book. Where do you want to send folks? You got the book, you got the podcast. So where's the best place for folks to connect with you? Just go to my website, shelbystanger.com and then follow me on Instagram at shelbystanger. That's probably where I have the most up-to-date information about events, about the book, about the podcast. The podcast can be found anywhere podcasts are. There's wild ideas worth living. And I also started one during the pandemic that is on pause and will be coming back soon called Vitamin Joy about the power of mental health and humor. And it's really good. So I highly recommend, there's an episode with my mom who's an interventionist that I think is, has been helpful to a lot of people. It's about addiction. So we'll make sure we include all those links in the show notes. Thanks again for coming on. This feels like it was long overdue, but it came at the right time because I felt like we have such a great story to tell. So I appreciate uh, your friendship and appreciate you coming on and looking forward to getting another visit in at some point <laughs> down that. to San Diego. Thank you, so Harry. thanks again. I appreciate you. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks again to Shelby for sharing her fantastically inspiring story. So grateful for her friendship over the years and to see the journey that she's been on since I was able to help her launch the show so many years ago. So fantastic to see the journey that she's come on. As always, full show notes are available at podcastjunkies.com. Intro and outro music composed by Cedar and Soil. Learn more about his fantastic music at cedarsoil.com. Don't forget to check out our sponsor, Focusrite, and their awesome line of gear, specifically the Vocaster. Check out the full lineup at podcastjunkies.com forward slash Vocaster. Podcast production marketing provided by Fullcast. Learn more at fullcast.co to see if a podcast is right for you and your brand. If you've made it this far, you're no doubt looking for this week's retention hashtag. Let's go with Surfing Shelby, and you can tag us at podcast underscore junkies. And Shelby at Shelby Podcasts. Tune in next week for my conversation with Tim Viegas. Thanks for all you do to support this show. Talk to you next week.